Mr. High Commissioner, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the director of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo PRIO for short. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here to PRIO for today's roundtable discussion on the important topic of how we should respond to global displacement. I would also like to take the opportunity to wish you all a happy International Women's Day. The occasion of uh, today's event is a visit to Norway by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Mr. Filippo Grandi. We are delighted and honored to be able to welcome you to Oslo and to PRIO. The UNHCR is doing vitally important work and we look forward to hearing and engaging with your uh, unique insights on these pressing issues. And as a sad reminder of the magnitude, but also to Europe, the proximity of the challenge is the current war in Ukraine uh, and the resulting enormous humanitarian consequences. As of March 4, 1.2 million people had fled Ukraine to other countries in the region, and the UN officials estimate up to 4 million people could leave Ukraine if the situation continues to deteriorate. And right now, uh, that does indeed, unfortunately, seem to be the case. This event is co-hosted by the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in association with the PRIO Migration Center and the Norwegian Red Cross. Many thanks to our partners and to our distinguished panelists for helping bring this roundtable to fruition. As I mentioned, the theme of today uh, will be displacement as a global issue and how it may best be addressed. This is a subject that is uh, known to PRIA researchers and that we have uh, turned considerable attention to over a number of years. Two particular hubs for this work are the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies, which is a joint initiative between the three Norwegian research institutes, the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Bergen, CMI, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, NUPI, and PRIO, aimed at promoting humanitarian research and facilitating analysis and discussion on humanitarian related issues. And second, the PRIO Migration Center, which gathers PRIO's internationally leading research on uh, uh, migration. Beyond these two centers, forced displacement is an issue uh, on which a great deal of PRIO research touches, cutting across our work on armed conflict, oppressive regimes, border politics, etc. We have also conducted significant research on the ways in which refugees themselves become agent of change, improving their own and others' situation. And you can find an overview of our work in these areas by going to our website, preo.org, and clicking on the relevant topic tags, for instance, migration and humanitarianism. Chairing today's uh, discussion is Dr. Maria Gabrielsen-Jumberg, 
Dr. Jumberg is a research director at PRIO as well as co-director of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. And she has worked extensively on um, responses to migration across the Mediterranean uh, from EU border policies to humanitarian rescue efforts, as well as on civil society and volunteer responses to refugees and other migrants arriving in Europe. So Maria, over to you and welcome. Thank you very much, Henrik, for this introduction. And it is indeed a great pleasure to welcome you all to this panel today. Welcome, Mr. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi, and welcome to our dear panelists, which I will introduce in a short bit. It is no understatement that the world has changed drastically over the past two weeks with Russia's aggression in Ukraine and the outbreak of the war. In addition to the rapid escalation of the war, we have seen an almost unprecedented number of people fleeing the country in such a short time. And the numbers continue to rise from day to day. We are honored to have you with us today, Mr. High Commissioner Filippo uh, Grandi, as you come straight from Poland to this visit to Norway. And we look forward to hearing your reflections on the most pressing challenges there in the region around Ukraine, as well as the broader challenges to the refugee protection system globally, and exchange with the rest of this distinguished panel. A few words of introduction uh, before I introduce you all. 2021 marked the 70th anniversary of the adoption of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Considered as the cornerstone of international responses to global displacement, the Convention is an enduring instrument of protection that has assisted millions of refugees over many decades. Despite this, the Convention is subject to much criticism for being outdated and non-responsive to contemporary needs as well as inadequate in addressing the challenges of international responsibility sharing. We can also here remind that most of those who have to flee their homes due to conflict or unrest are still internally displaced, meaning that they have not crossed an international border and are thus not considered as refugees. Just as we can also remind that some of those countries who host the largest refugee populations are not signatories of the Refugee Convention. As new crises emerge, as we are witnessing now, and other displacement situations become increasingly protracted, how do we best respond, both within and outside of the framework of the 1951 Refugee Convention? This is the core question that we wanted to discuss here today with a view both to the current situation that we are all following in and around Ukraine, but also globally. While the current situation and the reactions across Europe are now being compared to the responses to refugees and other migrants arriving in 2015 and 2016, a lot has also happened over these past few years. One could ask if we are at a watershed moment in terms of global refugee protection, because on the one hand, we have seen uh, over the last few years an unparalleled assault on refugee rights in many parts of the world. And on the other hand, the international community has also come together to reach agreement about how to best respond to the challenges of global displacement. In 2018, two new instruments sought to reinvigorate the moral and political undertakings of the world's governments when it comes to people movement. 
First, the Global Compact on Refugees and the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration. So how then, with these instruments, can the international community work together to protect and assist refugees and to find durable solutions to increasingly complex displacement situations for displaced Syrians and Afghans or elsewhere in the Middle East, not to forget Palestinian refugees, although a separate UN agency is responsible for them, um, or persons from East and West Africa who might be stuck in Libya or even in Europe, as we see in Greece or other countries in Europe, awaiting a clarification of their status. Finally, as we will also touch upon during this discussion, what is the space and place for refugee participation in shaping these processes and outcomes? Also, uh, on this International Women's Day, we will also remember that women, children, but also men, indeed all genders, are vulnerable in situations of displacement. Yet they also show incredible courage and strength as they seek protection and make their livelihoods for themselves and others affected. And to engage with all these questions, I'm very pleased to have such a distinguished panel with us today. I'll invite you, the panelists, now to come up here, and I will introduce you all before we engage with, with the questions. First of all, welcome Mr. High Commissioner, Filippo Grandi. You have served as the UN High Commissioner for Refugees since 2016, and having previously served as Commissioner General of UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, and you also have extensive experience working with the UN in Afghanistan, in addition to a range of other countries in Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and at the headquarter in Geneva. Welcome. We are very honored to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. And great to see so many friends. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> then welcome Gunn Jurid Roset. You are the director of the section for humanitarian affairs at the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Before taking up this position last year, you were the ambassador for Norway in Malaysia and have also worked extensively in Asia and with uh, the region. Uh, within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Then welcome Olivier Mukuta. You are the co-founder of Vipikash, an app-based solution that allows people to easily send money back to their home countries. You have a refugee background yourself, uh, coming from Congo and arriving here in Norway in 2005 as a quota refugee. And your initiative was founded together with other refugees seeking to find the best ways to help family and relatives uh, back home. Welcome. Thank you. Then welcome Maya Janmir. You are a professor of international migration law at the University of Oslo. You're particularly interested in how refugees and other migrants understand and engage with legal norms and institutions, and in how international refugee law in particular is interpreted and implemented in local contexts, having worked most extensively in Lebanon. Most recently, your focus has been on the role of states that are not signatories to the 1951 Refugee Convention within the Beyond Project. Finally, also, welcome to Jan Egeland, uh, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, a position you took up in 2013, 
And prior to this, you also have an extensive experience as a humanitarian uh, worker, uh, serving as the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator from 2003 to 2006, and having in recent years also served in different capacity within the UN system, supporting its efforts in Syria. And you also have your background from the Norwegian Research Institutes as well. A great pleasure to have you all with us. I'll start uh, with an opening question, uh, Mr. High Commissioner. Against the background now, as we have heard, of 1.7 million uh, people having fled Ukraine in just a little bit more than a week since the start of the war, and you came straight from Warsaw yesterday, could you perhaps start with sharing with us how you see the situation now with regards to Ukrainians? and uh, people with other citizenships fleeing Ukraine. How is the response apparatus of UNHCR set in motion? And what are the most pressing needs right now? That's a simple question in yes. a few <laughs> minutes, but I'll try to be very concise. I think we have to start by saying, what's the situation inside Ukraine, first of all? Uh, we, and I think Jan, also your people, and other UN organization, NGOs, Red Cross, we're still inside. And we're not going away until they kick us out, <laughs> I can assure you. Or we're forced out by, by the risks, by military action. Um, we, I think that our scope of action is relatively limited now. But we still have a sense of the humanitarian situation inside the country. There are hundreds of thousands of people on the move in increasingly dangerous conditions. I'll give you a few snapshots because I've just spent a few days along different borders. I was in Romania and Moldova and in Poland, so I spoke to a lot of the people coming out. You know, one story that struck me very much in Poland the other day was a family that told me, I said, how was the, the flight? And they I said, could you be in touch with you know the people because all of many of them have connections in Poland and in other countries. They said we that was a terrible situation because they could not use the phones. It was forbidden. I said, is it because they were not working? No, because the light of the phones can attract bombs. So it's forbidden to have any light at night in certain parts of the country. This reminded me stories that my parents told me about Second World War and how they had to put, you know, blue paper on the windows. Just to bring home that we have a very serious war, very next, very close to us, and there are millions of people that are in it already and are terrified and moving. How many? I don't know. You know, we've given figures, one million on the move, but it's very difficult to estimate given also our sporadic reach inside the country. But we are there. We, we work mostly, I don't know about Norwegian, but I'm sure we all do the same. We work mostly through local groups, through local NGOs or other groups that can still deliver assistance. And we try to, to work in places where people move and regroup and are accessible. The government also, its action is more and more limited, is trying to do the same. So that's the situation inside. Um, what we have seen so far, and we are, I just tweeted, we are at two million, two million people uh, that have come out. What we have seen so far is 
mostly women and children, you know that, because the men are staying behind to fight women, children, some elderly people, many disabled people. Uh, that's an important aspect. Um, we also see people that have some resources right now because they have been able to pay to drive sometimes or to pay their travel to the border. And more important even, they have connections either in those countries where they arrive or further in Europe or even beyond. But we believe that the second wave will be very... <laughs> progressively, we will see people that do not have resources and that do not have connections. So most likely they will stop where they arrive. Um, now, uh, some countries like Moldova that is particularly exposed have already made arrangements with Romania to have a quick channel, almost no procedure for people to move because Romania has much more capacity, but we will need more of those arrangements going forward. Um, Europe, as you know, has declared um, for the first time they utilized the directive of 2001 on temporary protection and uh, that is useful I think there's been quite a lot of debate because it allows European states basically to give mobility to everybody within the EU and I understand from your Minister of Justice that Norway is doing something in parallel to that so that's good um, but very soon I think there will have to be a discussion on a more proactive repartition because at the moment it's spontaneous people just go and that's good it's a kind of natural mm. spontaneous self-distribution of people but um, uh, that will be the next step may I make a little aside here given also the theme of this uh, symposium I think that's good, that this time Europe will be obliged to have that discussion. A discussion that has been, let's call a spade a spade, immensely frustrating in the past few years. The discussion on sharing the responsibility. Now I think because there is, the numbers are so great, there is a more urgent necessity and there is you know, a conscience that you know, something needs to be done right away. I hope that that will unblock the overall discussion about sharing responsibility, not just about Ukrainian refugees, but about other refugees that will continue, by the way, to arrive in Europe from other parts of the world. Um, just a few other things very quickly. Uh, one is the reception by these governments has been exceptionally good. I have to say, I mean, Jan knows we, we see this all the time. It's complicated for governments, but chapeau to this government. They did a great job. Um, some are struggling a bit more because of the lack of resources like Moldova, but Poland, for example, is doing a great job. And I have to tell you, I spent the whole day with the border guards at the two border posts with Ukraine in Poland. It's done with a lot of humanity, also because the bulk of the response is done by people, by civil society. It's done by the local community, actually by communities all over Poland. I visited a school that is just full of supplies, of food, of toys for children. There's volunteers everywhere and very disciplined. And I have to say the Ukrainians are very disciplined too. It's, it's an amazing sight up to now. It may change, but up to now is like that. There's been, we've all read stories of alleged discrimination that 
you know, Ukrainians were allowed through, non-Ukrainians, African citizens, Middle Eastern citizens were pushed back. It may have happened on a few occasions. I have not seen it. And uh, I was said at the highest level of all this country that it is not the policy of these governments, that everybody has the right to cross whatever the nationality. I think there were some issues, lack of clarity about which documents could be accepted. So inevitably, in a situation so sudden, and I'm not trying to justify any discrimination, for God's sake, but, and if it has happened, we have condemned it. But I think that we need to look at it in this context. And I think that at the moment, um, it, is, it is being addressed. And in fact, everybody is, is passing through. There's about, in Poland, they estimated about 5% of third country nationals, students, migrant workers, other people that are living in Ukraine. And uh, these are mostly sent back to their countries if they want. Otherwise, they have other arrangements. Um, my final points would be the importance of even as we um, and, and you know, you ask what UNHCR is doing. UNHCR, of course, on the side of the UN, we are coordinating the outside response. OCHA is coordinating the inside response. Mm -hmm. we, have, we have a very good division of labor with Martin Griffiths, the successor to Jan as emergency <laughs> relief coordinator. And we've, we have a cell in Geneva that, uh, where everybody is welcome to participate that <laughs> tries to coordinate that on, on both fronts. Um, we had questions, I had questions about whether, how much can we do in European countries? This is not like countries where normally we would do almost everything. Mm. You know, here there are structures in Europe that mm. function, but I have to say that every government, slightly different ways, want, want help. Want help from the UN, want help from the Red Cross, want help from the NGOs. They just demand that it is coordinated by them very strongly, and I think they're absolutely correct. We are there to support them. But but we need to look also at the long term, medium term, because this may go on. The Polish government, they received more than a million people alone. They are, for example, worried. They said, what will you do about our school system? We may have a million extra children to send. They want to send children to school. Uh, in a few days, the, the system is not yet equipped to absorb. Mm. So this is also beyond what humanitarians can do. We'll do our best, but health system that will be uh, uh, invested. So we, we are also talking to the World Bank, to the IMF, because these are these are structural issues that will have to be considered uh, uh, for the first time in Europe, mm. as they are considered in other parts of the world. And uh, and finally, uh, just to say. Um, we don't know what is going to happen in Ukraine. At the moment, there's a lot of discussion about these corridors. I'm sure you've, seen, you've followed it. How many times we went through this in Syria? I mean, Jan knows. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I hope that we can do. We have colleagues in Mariupol with whom we are in touch. They do need to get supplies in and to get people out. So we hope that eventually it will work. I haven't followed the news in the last two hours, so I don't know what's the latest. But, um, but what we need is a ceasefire, not just corridors. We need a more comprehensive end of hostilities to allow, at least, at least for some time, to allow to help people and perhaps for longer. But if the war continues, if it goes horribly wrong, and it might, we may also see now men coming out. 
this separation of families is a very, very big problem. I have to say, I've, I've said it already, and the most terrible thing to watch is this separation. Because in Moldova, in Poland, they, they don't reach the border. But in Moldova, I saw men accompanying the families and then going back. You, don't, you can't even watch that, I can tell you, because they don't know if they will see them again. But what may happen is that if the situation deteriorates further, then we will also cement. So there will be an enormous work of family reunification to be done and more complicated issues as well. I'll stop here because I would have a lot to say, but I wanted to give you a snapshot of the situation. Thank you very much for this first and very comprehensive uh, response. I'll just allow myself one brief follow-up question before we also turn to the rest of the panel. Uh, as you indicated, and as we have seen, most European states have been quick now to declare their willingness to open their doors and, and host re those fleeing Ukraine. To which extent would you say that your work with the UNHCR is shaped by neighboring states' willingness and ability to host refugees? But that's true every time. You know, yeah. they are, they are uh, host, what we call host countries, mm. which are usually countries next mm. to the countries in crisis. They're the ones always bearing the biggest brunt. I mean, we are enormously grateful to countries like Norway that gives us, and today again the foreign minister announced additional resources for this crisis. Uh, and, you know, uh, Western countries giving us a lot of money to function. But we should not forget, as they often say, the biggest donors to this effort are the countries hosting the refugees in the first place. <laughs> and uh, what I saw yesterday or the last few days in Poland and other places, the local communities being the first responders. It's true everywhere. I remember in 2017 in Bangladesh when the wave of Rohingya refugees came, I went there after a few days. It was the local community that was bringing food. and So very often it is, it is the always the host countries and very often the local communities. May I add one point that I should have added? I sort of uh, touched on it, but this question is related. The point that I made, the first country that I visit after this trip is Norway. I'm going to Sweden, and I, and I'm glad that this. It was very easy to pass this message here, but we must pass it very strongly that the enormous focus that exists now on Ukraine, and you know, I'm not. It has to be like this. Yes. Um, should not distract us from other crises that continue mm. in Ethiopia, in Afghanistan, in Venezuela, in, you know, the list is very long. So I think it's important that we also all urge our governments to focus, to not to let go, and whatever they do to respond to this crisis, to help those mm. neighboring countries, financial assistance mm. or resettlement, quota, you call them quota refugees here, mm. should be additional to what exists already. Otherwise, we rob people, Peter, to pay Paul. You know, we, mm. we just move resources. And given that last year, UNHCR declared 40 emergencies, 40, record year, uh, you know, we can't cope if there is no more money. Now, you may see uh, how long will this request for money go on. Well, it will go on until these conflicts are not resolved. Yeah. So, unfortunately, mm. it will grow. Yeah. Thank you very much.
And indeed, now moving over also to, to looking at the global context today, we want in, with this panel uh, to look at how we can um, identify different paths for reinvigorating uh, different international responses to global displacement. But before we do that, we also need to have a round with all of you in this panel to, uh, to define what we think the main challenges are in terms of international uh, protection for refugees and displaced persons. Would you like to, to start again with this, and Maybe. then we'll take the, the panel? But why don't we pass <laughs> okay, on well, to then the we, others then and we I'll start speak on later. <laughs> then we'll give you a rest. <laughs> I do all then, the talk. <laughs> then I will start with, on this end of the panel, uh, Jan Egeland. Can you start by sharing what you think are the main challenges in terms of international protection to refugees today? And perhaps also as a representative of one of the largest humanitarian NGOs working with refugee protection, your views in light of yeah, how, how, how different groups are, are vulnerable in these situations. Thanks, uh, Maria. Thanks for, for organizing this. Uh, and, and welcome, Filippo. It's very good to have you here. The, the one good thing we should really celebrate and recognize today with the High Commissioner here is we have a UNHCR. We have a UN. We have, uh, we have the biggest humanitarian muscle in the history of mankind. So, I do not foresee many Ukrainians starving unless they are besieged like they became in Syria. The reason people starved to death in Syria was that they were encircled. We couldn't get in with convoys. So, so the world is much better since the last uh, similar Exodus of people, which was the Second World War. There wasn't UNHCR. There wasn't. There, there was. There was the Red Cross, and that's it. Um, what not better is very apparent. We're not preventing war. I mean, 2022 and a senseless war like this happens. So I hope that Prio and we all can, in a way, look back. How could it come to this in 2022? I went to Ukraine myself uh, just two weeks before the war, traveled up and down the front line. We have 70 U NRC colleagues on the ground. There are actually few international organizations that have people on the ground. Uh, the UN agencies, including UNHCR, are there, a, a few others. <clears throat> and then there are uh, um, Ukrainian uh, organizations. There had been a war there for a conflict going on for eight years. It, it, it never ended. And there were two million people along the front line. Those should have been spared for this. So I, I think we really have to have this urgency. How could it come to this? I mean, and, 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 and how could Russia attack in such a senseless manner? How come that all of these men in all of these safe offices were talking about, you know, historic uh, borders and historic uh, injustices and uh, NATO expansion or not and so on. Mm. And no one understood mm. that millions would be displaced by a senseless war in 2022. Mm. So that's the first one to global displacement by stopping war and, 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 and conflict resolution, of course. Mm. That's number one. And the second one is that we are, we who've been there since, say, for, for 100 years in humanitarian work, we have to recognize that the enormous progress we have in assistance 
logistical change was incredible. NRC alone will take upon us to help 800,000 Ukrainians inside and outside, where one NGO, well, one of the largest NGO now in the world, but uh, alone, uh, the UN will take on millions, etc. Assistance has become much, much further than protection. And on women's uh, day, I mean, of course, women are still abused beyond belief in conflicts, probably less in Ukraine than still in Congo and, and many of these places where there are hundreds of armed groups and not two opposing armies, but also boys and men uh, are systematically targeted and often not understood enough that we're losing a lot of young men to war machines and to recruitment and so on. It shouldn't happen in 2022. We have to look at conflict resolution. That's where the UN, in my view, has failed the most in the recent years. Thank you very much, uh, Jan Egeland. I'll continue now with the other panelists. Maya Janmir, from your perspective as a legal researcher, what are the, this is also a big question, but what are, in your view, the main challenges in terms of making the international system for refugee protection work? Yeah, so there are numerous challenges when it comes to responding to global displacement and when it comes to protecting refugees. And just to mention a, a, a few, lack of enforceability of refugee rights, the, the lack or, or the weak accountability mechanisms that are connected to the international refugee regime, to mention some, Increasing difficulties to find durable solutions, right? This is something that UNHCR will definitely recognize. And of course, the big challenge of responsibility sharing, that, that is something that we will discuss here today. But I think if I'm allowed to just choose one thing that I feel permeates or sort of underscores the entire uh, system, that is the whole question about access to international protection. Uh, where we see that today refugee containment is in fact a hallmark of the international refugee regime, where states uh, find it suitable to uh, have to keep certain refugees in certain parts or regions of the world. So that has today become a hallmark. Containment then coupled with state policies of externalization, of irregularization, simply as a way to avoid protection-related responsibilities. So I think this entire deterrence uh, tendency among states to set up both physical and procedural barriers to uh, limit the access to international protection in the first place, I think that is one of the major challenges. But I very much agree also with, with Jan Egeland in, in going back to the root causes and, and preventing conflict in the first place. But if we're talking about responding to displacement, I think the question of access is key. Thank you very much, uh, Maya, for both this broad overview, but also <laughs> to, to the point about what's, what is really the challenge. I'll turn now to you, Olivier Mercuta. From your perspective, what, what would you say are the main uh, challenges to oh. providing international protection? Oh, well, I think I'll talk for my experience is um, uh, just a quick, quick, quick introduction. I grew up in a refugee camp. I mean, I lived, I lived there for 18, no, 12 years since I was six until Norway came and rescued me out of that. <laughs> uh, and I think 
from my experience, is the first thing is uh, the first respond, meaning people who are there. Uh, I mean, because we've seen uh, there's a lot of organizations that are there helping, which is great. Uh, but we've seen that people, just like you also mentioned, people who are near, mm. I think they need resources mm. to help people mm. who are really in need of that help, like the first thing. And this is actually where I come, like my story comes in, because uh, we started building a company and our company was based on the experience that when something happened, of course, you can't wait for UNHCR to come and help mm. rescue. You can't help for... I don't know, the government to come and help you, but you have people in the nearest village who would say, hey, come, I will hide you here. Mm. And so my question is, is there a way to help those people to help so that they can also help? Mm. Uh, so the challenge, I would say, is the logistic part of that. Mm. Uh, of course, so that timeline, and that's the most critical time when you're waiting for the UNHCR to come, or waiting for mm. someone to save you. For, for me, that's, yeah. that's, that, that's the yeah. biggest challenge. Yeah. So talking yeah. from my experience. Thank you very much, Olivia. It's also very, very concrete, and we'll also come back to these questions of these different, um, both individuals, smaller local organizations, and the bigger international organizations, and how they uh, co cooperate. Uh, then to you, Gun Judith Roset, can you also share with us, also, of course, from Norway's perspective, what are the main, main challenges that you would describe them today to, to providing protection globally? Hmm. No, thank you. Um, and much uh, has been said that I can agree to, but maybe first I'll take the pass from the mm -hmm. High Commissioner on, on just you know, repeating the commitment that Norway has to not forget other refugee crises in the world, other humanitarian crises. In the world, uh, of course, it's always nice to engage with the High Commissioner, but often the, well, we will meet again in new occasions quite soon when new conferences mm -hmm. are coming up on Yemen, on Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and all these responses that we, we must not forget. So uh, I think I will just repeat what my foreign minister also said this morning, that you know we have mobilized funds to, to support the Ukraine crisis, but it will not come at the cost of other crises in the world. And I think mm -hmm. maybe that leads me also to the point of... Uh, what might be a large challenge in the response is to never forget and to keep focus. Uh, I don't like to use the words like forgotten crisis, but you know it's our responsibility as the global humanitarian community to to maintain, you know, alert and, and to work uh, for protection of civilians uh, all at all times. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's sort of one responsibility that we can take up on our, ourselves, which is not which is not always easy. Um, but uh, and of course, I, I think I have to sort of repeat Jan's point a little bit. It might seem <laughs> naive to say it, but you know, the best way to protect civilians is by not fighting, uh, by by ending the war. Uh, and I think I would like to also use the opportunity to, of course, repeat the government's condemnation of the military attack on Ukraine. So I think that's, of course. Um, leading to other tools that Norway has in our toolbox as a, as a foreign ministry and as a, in our foreign policy, not only as a humanitarian donor, but also working on peace and reconciliation. I think if you have studied the, the government platform Nexus to work on the sort of uh, longer-term solutions in all this protected crisis that, that we have to do better, and, and we, are, we have started. So, um, and I think maybe some of the points I might come back to later also when we talk to how we can work, but uh, I think also the principled... Uh, because I'm not here all, only representing a large fund of humanitarian you know, assistance, but as a 
as a government who speaks up for humanitarian principles, for humanitarian international law, and I think that advocacy work is, is just as important as the funds that we, we provide, and maybe also the funds can pull some weight then behind, behind the words in the Security Council, in the close dialogue we, had with, we have with our partners in Norway, with the UN system, that we use also our sort of political muscle, in a way, to, to remind everybody of the commitments we have to protect refugees and civilians. And, and internally displaced, of course. Yeah. So I think that's um, and how how can we protect civilians also when when international humanitarian law is under pressure, when it's not safe to work as a humanitarian, mm -hmm. uh, you know, act, uh, worker in Ethiopia or uh, in conflicts in the world. So I think that's also an, uh, a major. Mm. Uh, obst not a, or a challenge that we that we face. Um, so yeah, some points from me yes, there. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> um, many very important points uh, here uh, as well. And now back to you, uh, yeah. Filippo Grandi. If you can say uh, engage with with these perspectives here on these these yeah. main challenges. And yeah. it's good that they spoke. They gave me some <laughs> additional food for thought. <laughs> um, first, I want to make two main comments. One is on Jan's and other participants point on conflict resolution. I mean, we've been saying this now for some years in the humanitarian community. We should really be very worried about this inability to stop conflicts. And we are very fortunate to have countries like Norway or Ireland in the Security Council. But unfortunately, one, they are a minority, and two, they don't have veto power. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's um, I shouldn't, don't quote me on that, but um, it's, uh, I think that uh, I am sure that they are witnessing the paralysis of that supreme institution for the maintenance of peace and security. And the risk is that, of course, this polarization that we see on each debate, each debate, I briefed the Security Council last week, even, you know, I don't express any political judgment. I simply describe the situation of refugees, and that triggers an acrimonious debate. Even that gets paralyzed. So. Um, the risk is that, of course, that paralysis leads to the elimination, or not elimination, but marginalization of any fora where, you know, which the international community has put in place after the Second World War to resolve conflict. And if we, those institutions don't work well, but if we don't have them, it's even worse. So this is the risk that, uh, faced with the enormous challenge of this conflict, um, we lose any possibility of making peace. We are going to be on a very slippery slope at that point. Mm. Very slippery slope. And I'm very worried about that. Now, the other point is more on the crisis of protection, on which I entirely agree. And um, the crisis of protection in the rich countries in particular, so in Europe, in North America, in parts of Asia in particular, um, in Australia, maybe even first and foremost, uh, this crisis of protection is, has many aspects. Um, it originates, in my opinion, um, in a fundamental 
there are some fundamental flaws in the manner in which rich countries manage the flow of people coming to their borders or shores. Not just refugees, but also migrants. Because what we observe, and we know that, is a lot of migrants not being able to avail themselves of proper migration channels, enough slot, legal, legal migration channels, uh, come and seek asylum, burdening the asylum system, and blocking the asylum system. This, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that this is what's happening. This, of course, is compounded by the political manipulation that many leaders are making of that, portraying anybody who comes, including refugees, as an abuser of everything. People coming to steal our jobs, to steal, to bring insecurity, to threaten our values. You know the rhetoric. Maybe you had it less here. But where I come from, I'm Italian, it was very strong in certain moments. And this triggers an additional problem that even governments that would like to do the right thing are intimidated by that. And by default, they go back to this what do you call it? I like that containment policy, policies that actually in some cases is much worse than containment. It's pushbacks, mm. horrible pushbacks. We've just made a statement a few days ago on this in Europe, in at the southern border of the US and in other places. So this, you know, escalates into a crisis that of course then by contagion goes to other countries that are much more impacted by refugee flows and say, well, if the rich countries cannot take a handful, why should we take millions? So this is very dangerous as well. Now, two final points, maybe a little bit more, not optimistic, but looking more on the positive side. One, I repeat the point I made later. Maybe the Ukrainian crisis could be a turning point because of so many factors, you know, there is, a willingness, I think, uh, to, uh, you know, I think that there is also a willingness not to admit that this is a big problem, you know, because otherwise you, you know what I mean, you give satisfaction to those who may have created it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to, we can manage it, which is the attitude we've always told governments they should keep. We can manage this. There are systems and principles to do it. So I think that we have a window there. Let's hope that we should all push in that direction to use it for a better system, starting from Europe and then maybe beyond. And then remember that we have two compacts that the UN has put in place. One for refugees, which we sort of manage, and one for safe and orderly migration. It's very important. They complementary these two compacts that IOM and other organizations manage. And those compacts are not conventions. They're not treaties. They're not binding in the same way. But they are toolboxes. Mm that offer a lot, as, as Jan said, a lot of new and much more sophisticated ways to deal with this, not only from the assistance point of view, but from the protection point of view as well. So really an encouragement to government to look, we propose those compacts to help governments, not to make life more difficult for them, but to help them have a more um, respectful approach to protection. And by the way, and very last point, because I think the point on local providers is very important. One of the 
tenets of that, of those, especially the refugee compact, but not only of the refugee compact, of, the, um, of much of the humanitarian debate these days, is to strengthen local providers. It's difficult to strengthen individuals, but you can strengthen, you, you know, building the capacity of civil society in countries to respond is one of the tools that we think should be developed more. Absolutely. And you touched upon already some of the themes that I want to continue to explore with you now. And indeed, as you well described now, we know that the international protection system relies heavily on sound international cooperation, which we unfortunately don't always see. And this goes both for the willingness to fund the operations, but also the willingness to actually host uh, refugees and other migrants uh, when these needs are there. Uh, turning now to, to first to Jan Egeland, uh, how would you say that these challenges in the area of international cooperation, how, does, how do they affect you as a humanitarian NGO? Oh, in a million ways, really. The, well, the, the good news is, of course, that there is now also humanitarian funding from quite a few nations. Still, uh, still I'm amazed that tiny little Norway, so close to the North Pole, is still the seventh largest donor on Earth. I mean, nobody lives here. How, how can we be bigger than enormous economies? Still, there is, uh, there, there is funding. My organization gets funding from 30 donor nations and so on. <clears throat> so that's the good news. The bad news really is uh, that we see a wave of nationalism, really. So, so international cooperation on refugee, refugee reception is not good. Uh, you, uh, Philippa hosted this wonderful uh, compact for global refugee responsibility sharing 2018. We were very optimistic. I was there. Um, UNHCR is heroically following up on that. We, the NGOs, are, are, are pretty critical, actually, of the member states and the lack of such. So when Norway then says, with our 3,000 quota, 3,000 quota refugees, that one political party says should now go to Ukraine. And Norway says 3,000 really puts us in a place of being among the best in the world. Mm. Then I say, well, I mean, <laughs> It's a very small quota, in my view, too small for Norway, mm. too small for Norway, and still it's one of the best in the world uh, compared to, to the size of population. Yeah. It shows how bad other countries are really mm. now. And many of these fantastic nations, I mean, Poland took more people in now in 10 days than Europe got in the refugee crisis of 2015, when the continent with 500 million people panicked. Mm. That's what happened. We, the, the refugee crisis, uh, you know, uh, 500 million people in this continent, look at that, 500 pupils in a schoolyard. And then comes one little girl in, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from outside, 501 in the schoolyard. And the school panics? No, it shouldn't. So we panic because of bad uh, nationalistic tendencies, politicians, media, social media uh, uh, groups that, that really stirred xenophobia. Final point is, I hope you're right, Filippo, that it could be a turning point to something better because people really realize 
cannot continue like this. And there has to be responsibility sharing and whatnot. And maybe some of those who are most against responsibility sharing that are now overwhelmed and ask for responsibility sharing would now understand that they did nothing to receive Afghans and Syrians and so on. I'm not that optimistic. I think, actually, we may not get the resolutions we need on Syria anymore. Cross-border to Syria, for example. Well, uh, we will have even less per Afghan, Syrian, etc., refugees because of Europe going uh, so much to our own war. And, and uh, uh, there will be more general neglect in, in attention to Congo and the local organizations and, and, and all of that. So we have to fight. I mean, it's a, it's a battle of values, this. We need to fight. This will be a, a tough, tough time ahead. Absolutely. Now, uh, bridging on from your focus on the international uh, donors and the funding uh, to these various crises, and now turning also back to you, Olivier Mukuta. Um, when we talk about funding to uh, and meet the needs for displaced people, it is often easy to forget also that part of the largest funding streams are through transmittances and private uh, transfers to families, uh, connections uh, back in respective home countries. Uh, can you say a little bit more about uh, what that means uh, for those on the receiving end, and perhaps also for uh, you and others in the diaspora uh, when you engage for, for your connections in either your home country or, or elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say is um, just immigrants, uh, diasporas, I mean, yearly they mobilize for more than $600 billion sending back home. So it's, it's quite a lot of money, if you think of. And uh, quite often people forget uh, them. And they always just look at, oh, the UN or this, uh, you know. But there is a huge a number, mm. or a huge amount that mm. can be mobilized in terms of crisis. It's just about how to reach them, talk to them, and then make them realize, oh, there's, there's a crisis and there's help needed, mm. and how to do it. And that's actually where we came in, uh, mm. because I used my experience as a refugee, because I remember living in, uh, in this refugee camp. Uh, people who were helping me were friends that uh, left the camp, friends that were in Australia and the US that were sending me like, I don't know, it was $5 mm. that I would, yeah, uh, give it to my mom. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, and then the rest is just history anyway. Mm. But, uh, but this just showed like, if we do focus and say, hey, um, how can we help? Mm. So when, when I moved here, the first thing that came in my mind was, oh, there's a lot of money. People, you know, just me, I was getting the first payment that I got. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm rich. <laughs> but then I didn't I actually forgot that I have to pay some bills. <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but, but the first thing that I came in mind was looking at my friends who are still in that refugee camp. Mm. Up until now, I have anyway friends that have been there for more than mm. 20 years. Yeah. So that's the first thing that came in my mind. Like, okay, how can I help? Mm. So the first thing I did was call them and say, hey, I'm going to send you money. But one thing that I found out was like, okay, for them as well, it was, it was party because yes, Olivier is in Europe now. So whenever I sent them money, it was like, wow, you know. So the idea came is like, how do I secure, how do I make sure that I give them the help that they need? So that's where the history of our company came in, uh, VP Cash. So what we wanted to do is 
to help them with exactly what they needed. Because from my experience, when I sent money to that friend of mine in that camp, I told him like, you have to go out of that camp and go to school. But for him, he's like, no, he chose to do something else. So then I was like, okay, how can I help him directly so that he could go to school? So can I send money directly to a school and that that school will come and pick him up and say, hey, your money has been paid. You don't have to worry about mm. something. And this is where he came in and we started to think like, what's the, what are the challenges that the diaspora have when they're sending money back home? And in terms of conflicts, we've had problems. We've got families that are stuck. And we are the first people, we are the first person that actually do that before the UN comes, uh, comes in or the government comes in. We are the one on the phone, WhatsApp, and say, hey, I've sent you money. Please find a place to reach. So, um, yeah, like how we do it is that's how we do it. Now, right now we have a platform that people can come there and we also mobilize people, not only individually, but also right now, for example, in terms of crisis, we have, we send out our... Uh, notification to everyone in the platform with more than 500,000 now and for example we have uh, a campaign going on mm. about Ukraine mm. uh, but it's also sadly to say because now the campaign which is going on there it's more about the non-European refugees mm. that need help and then but we've seen there's a lot of like now it's about a million knock that has been raised through mm. our app that is uh, it's going to Ukraine so, and this is just the diaspora, yep. and it is not, uh, it's just the community, the Congolese mm. community, Burundian community, the uh, mm. Syrian community. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's what I, I would say in terms of that is uh, we should also focus and look into how can we mobilize mm. the group of uh, immigrant or diaspora that are living in, in the mm. Western to also assist and not only just look to the bigger organization and, and, and yep. say, that's your responsibility. No, yep. it's each one's, uh, each and everyone's responsibility mm. to do that. Absolutely, and, it's, and thanks for sh sharing these perspectives and your experience also with uh, this dense international web in a way of contacts between those who have resettled uh, elsewhere and those who are still um, uh, back home in a way, and and how how these webs of uh, networks of contacts are are maintained, and the importance of these individual civil society organizations and structures, and which is mirrored also in what we see uh, today with the civil society uh, volunteers, citizens stepping up to to help uh, those fleeing from Ukraine, for instance, to take that most um, recent example. There, so 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 we we see the, these. Uh, individuals acts in ways it's stepping up uh, in these moments of uh, of a need and crisis now to um, continue on the on the question of of uh, the international funding uh, over to you uh, Ruset. the Norway is as we have heard and know an important uh, humanitarian donor notably to organizations like the UNHCR can you share a little bit more with us what are the considerations when Norway is weighing how to best contribute in different ways. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, difficult questions. Uh, no, uh, as I said uh, earlier, of course, uh, I think uh, they think of Norway humanitarian assistance. I think many, as Ian also pointed to, think about the magnitude of the budget, of course, which is a, a sort of a privilege to to to, to coordinate and 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 advise the government uh, on on how to to sort of fulfill the 
sort of goals that we have set out in our humanitarian strategy. Um, so I think then the strategy is where protection is probably the most prominent when it comes to sort of the operationalization of who to, to reach. And then I think uh, the next step would be uh, finding partners like the UNHCR and, and the Refugee Council is sort of our tools to, to reach reach. Uh, those uh, those populations, but I think as as I mentioned, I think for us it's not uh, it's not only the budget, but it's about the politics. About that Norway will be a government that will sort of always speak on behalf of the of civilians. We always will sort of maintain a high focus on humanitarian principles. That people's needs are the ones you know directing the support, not where they are. Uh, so I mean, uh, and then you also have to talk to whoever. Um, you know, governs um, regions, countries uh, who are in control of that territory. I think we had quite a heated debate uh, in January when when Taliban visited, when when the humanitarian sort of part and access and the principled approach was really one of the main reasons they were here. Um, and uh, our Norwegian partners also met with them. So I think to to sort of be a bit brave or to sort of never. Um, Sort of give up on, on keeping that flag high for, for international humanitarian law, for the principles, and use whatever po possibilities we have politically. That's also about good ownership, I think, about creating that space mm. and reminding everybody that they have an obligation to protect and also to protect humanitarian workers. So I think that's, uh, that's one part of what our prioritization where we sort of divide our time. I think you will follow our footprints also in the Security Council, that protection of civilians um, is everywhere <laughs> in all the, uh, our, more or less our language. Uh, my colleague Maria is sitting there, she's actually uh, keeping the entire ministry uh, accountable, <laughs> checking, having lists to, to see that we can sort of deliver what we, we set out to do uh, when we were elected. And I think on on um, on sort of the donorship and choosing, I think for us it's not about being a big donor, but being a good donor, about having you know trust in our partners. We are a small unit in the ministry managing these funds, so we we work through our partners. We work through uh, you know UNHCR. We work through the Refugee Council. We we work through a lot of, of partners, um, and of course we try to can give directions. Um, you know, to be innovative, to sort of be, you know, effective, to, to use every Norwegian krona as efficiently as possible, to come up with, uh, with the new solutions. I've learned a lot <laughs> today. Um, and I think also to follow those political paths, as I was uh, saying. Um, and I, I think um, one of the things that we also challenge our partners when we have our sort of strategic discussions, of course, we trust in our partners, but we put some, some priorities down. Uh, what I think also inspired me now is to sort of maybe pass it on also to the other partners, because one of the things that we ask when we give into this huge, very you know, impressive engines, and I mean, we are so grateful for what you do and your staff that stay and deliver, is that... Uh, the end game is, of course, is the local community and to work with local partners and that there should be, that we are accountable to them and they should also be able to sort of then influence on whatever uh, funds <laughs> comes their way in a way. So that's, that's uh, another really important principle in our strategy 
as well. I won't repeat the, the long list of goals that we have. It's a very good strategy. You can find it on the government's <laughs> webpage. But uh, maybe also to, um, if Jan and, uh, and uh, the High Commissioner can share a little bit on how we work through other, our local partners as well, because that's also a very important sort of um, uh, strategy and sort of expectation that we put down in our dialogue with with our partners. Yeah, some points there. Thank you very much, Gunn uh, Jorid. Now, as one question, then first to, to Maya, and then before turning back to you, Filippo uh, Grandi. On the Refugee Convention, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, it is considered still as this cornerstone of uh, international responses to global displacement, while we also know that it has come under fierce criticism uh, when there are new crises, uh, large debates about how to how to solve them, how to best come together um, with also um, um, uh, some countries being more reluctant to, to stepping up or, or uh, seeing what are their best ways to, to contribute. What would you say from your perspective as a legal scholar uh, is the p place of the 1951 Refugee Convention in today's work to provide protection? Thank you so much. I, I could talk for hours about the Refugee <laughs> Convention, uh, and I will not do so. Uh, I will just limit myself to, to pointing that out, that we don't really know uh, what the impact the Refugee Convention has on refugee rights. Because on the one hand, of course, it's a cornerstone of international refugee protection. It's the cornerstone of the regime. It's, it's influenced the asylum uh, systems and policies of, of states worldwide. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't really have any scholarship that shows whether or not it's effective uh, for, for protecting refugee rights. So... Um, and, and we know from, from media reports that signatory status doesn't necessarily mean better refugee protection. And if we look at, at who's hosting the refugees across the globe, we have 44, 45 states. Uh, many of these are frontline states, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Lebanon, who um, uh, are not signatories to the Refugee Convention. Mm -hmm. At the University of, of, of Oslo, we have an ongoing project that's just started now, the Beyond Project, that looks precisely at the Refugee Convention's influence in uh, non-signatory mm -hmm. states and also the influence of these states on the international refugee regime. Uh, and uh, we're still in the very early stage, but, but already now do we see that non-signatory states, they engage with, they, they uh, uh, reason and converse within the Refugee Convention's parameters. Uh, we see that domestic courts in many non-signatory states actually engage with the Refugee Convention, uh, which of course is very interesting. Uh, so we will be follow up, following up on this in the years mm. to come and we'll be able to sort of share more, mm. uh, more research on the effectiveness and the impact of mm. the Refugee Convention. Mm. But now that I have the microphone, I would just like to follow up on some of the things that <laughs> everyone else has been saying, if I may. may. And I think when we're discussing Norway's role here and, the, and international cooperation, I think that there's one really important thing that we have to keep in mind. For Norway to be an incredible credible actor on the international stage when it comes to refugee protection, we need to lead by example, without doubt. 
And let's face the music. Norway's track record has not been excellent in this regard. In the past five years, uh, especially around 2015, 2016, uh, I would say that, that Norway has actually been quite nonchalant when it comes to UNHCR's mandate to supervise and monitor the interpretation and implementation of the Refugee Convention. And UNHCR has criticized Norway for this on several occasions, and I think that here we can be much, much better. And that definitely needs to be done because we cannot be a global actor on the international stage without having a good clean slate also on national asylum policies. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Maya, for also reminding the interconnections between what is done internationally and what different states also do, do at home. Uh, now turning back to you, uh, Mr. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi, and before I will also want to open up to the audience for some questions and answers uh, from you in, in a minute. Uh, I have a lot of more questions here, but I'll, I'll try to, to group them a little bit together. For you, uh, Filippo Grandi, when you hear about these discussions about the the, the place of the 1951 Refugee Convention, is it still up to date? Is it still uh, the appropriate tool f from, from your role? What, what are your responses to that or your reflections on that? Let me say something about that and about a few of the other points very quickly. Uh, one is, um, yeah, I agree with what Maya said. We have to be a little bit careful, but I, I know it's not your intention. When we say that we don't know the impact, it's true. But we have to be careful that saying this does not mean that it is not useful. <laughs> not only important, but useful. Because it could be extrapolated. Oh, you know, you don't need the convention because anyway, states will do whatever they want, sometimes good, sometimes bad. The convention is actually quite useful. It's still invocable. You know what I mean? It's still, we can still use it as, a, as, a, as an instrument that, against which we measure certain behaviors of states whether they have signed the convention or not, in fact. So I think it's important. And the other thing about the convention is that the convention is, if you read it, and it's a very quick read, you know, it's a short document, it's, it was, they were quite smart, those people that wrote the convention, because and, you know, in the 40s, very remarkable documents were written in terms of international law. Um, the convention um, has a great ability to adapt its spirit and also its principles to an evolving situations. The whole debate on climate, the convention is useful in relation to displacement. Um, we are engaged in complicated debate with many countries on refugees or people seeking asylum because they, f they flee discrimination due to sexual orientation or gender identity and not an easy debate. The convention, of course, doesn't mention that. Mm -hmm. This was not a debate in the 40s and the 50s, but now it is a debate, it is a reality, but the convention can be used. So it's quite extraordinary how it can be used. It has been updated by many other legal instruments, regional ones, and the compact is meant to provide practical tools to apply the convention, if I can simplify a bit. So there's quite a lot of interesting work there. The second point I wanted to make is, you know, Olivier made a few in interesting points about the value of civil society, of, you know, of people as first responders and maybe even second responders. I think it's very important. I think it's important to remember that 
in, especially in big emergency situations, both things are important. The UN, big NGOs may arrive a little bit later, but that coordination of efforts is crucial. It is crucial even now in the Ukrainian crisis. So I think it's important to balance. It's important that the two systems, if we can talk them like this, talk to each other. And maybe you're right. We should talk, we should take more into consideration the power of remittances in this situation, especially in protracted situations. And I come to the other point, which is, you know, it's very interesting what you're saying. And let's all remember, Olivier has found, thanks to Norway, a fantastic solution and, you know, building up his life here and doing, in fact, a lot for people who remain there, most of the refugees will not be in Olivier's situation, will remain in those refugee camps or difficult situations. So this is where we need to build their resilience, their capacity to be, even if they cannot go back to their homes, sometimes unfortunately is the case, they need to build resilience where they are. This is why the compact insists so much on inclusion. This is why I always say that inclusion, more than humanitarian assistance, you know, I, I, I always say inclusion is the new protection. Then I have my legal colleagues really getting nervous <laughs> about that, so I don't say it anymore. But I say inclusion is protection. That yeah. we can say, not maybe new protection, but is a form of protection. Because yeah. when you have access to schools, when you have access to uh, legal recourse, when you have access to, to jobs, that is a powerful uh, uh, net of protection for yourself in where you are a refugee. So that's where we need to invest. And, and finally, on the point on, you know, the Taliban came here, you, I really want to commend all of you who were involved in this dialogue, because that's the difficult part, engaging. Sometimes it's difficult. You know, we live in a world in which I can give you a list of seven or eight big theaters where we work, countries where we work, where we have to deal with entities that are either not recognized by anybody, like the Taliban, or um, at the receiving end of severe sanctions, and uh, like Syria, for example. And it's not easy to do humanitarian work in these situations, but the only way is to engage. And sometimes it's the humanitarians that engage first. And uh, that should not be seen as a compromise. That should be seen as an opportunity, as you said, to convey certain messages as well. So it's a complicated balance. You know, from here, I'll, in a few days, I'll be going to Afghanistan for second time I go since the Taliban took over. And I made it a purpose, by the way, to, to keep this trip because I also want to say there's not only Ukraine, there's other crises that continue. But the importance of the trip and it's not just me, it's many other people who have gone or will go there, is to engage, engage, engage. That's the only way forward. It requires a lot of patience, but it's the, it's the, it's the role that we can also play beyond the sheer humanitarian assistance to keep dialogue with entities that control large parts of countries or, con or whole countries. Thank you very much, Filippo Grandi. A final question to you before I also want to open up for our audience. Uh, on the occasion of your visit to Norway, where you are uh, talking also with the Norwegian uh, government, um, what, what can you say? We have heard that Norway is an important humanitarian donor. What would you say that Norway 
can do more of or should continue to, to do what role? Okay, well, <laughs> the sky's the limit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would agree with Jan that it's quite amazing that a, rel a small country uh, surely, a wealthy country, but a small country is <laughs> actually in, in our ranking, I think it's higher than seven, is one of the first five or six donors. And um, uh, so I think that to continue that, to, like the foreign minister said today at the press conference, consider this new crisis deserving additional resources, I would agree with Maya that it is important also to give the good example on domestic protection issues, and we have had some differences, or some remarks to make to uh, Norwegian uh, asylum policies and practices. Um, I agree with Jan that the quota, 3,000, is a good quota, but could be improved. The needs are much bigger today. Um, we had a long resettlement quota refugees crisis when the US basically destroyed its programs, but now they're rebuilding it. So there is a new momentum, and I think it's an opportunity perhaps yeah. for countries in Europe as well to follow this trend to increase. The Canadians are doing quite a lot. The US are doing quite a lot. So an invitation to consider that. Once again, maybe the awareness that the Ukrainian refugees are creating about what it means to be a refugee so close to, to, to us in Europe here can create more space also of acceptance for these measures. Thank you very much. Well, well received. I would like now to open up for questions from the audience. We have two microphones, and since we are recording the seminar, I will please uh, ask you to introduce yourselves before your question. So we have one first question here. Thank you. Jan Paul Brekke, Institute for Social Research uh, in, here in Oslo. Um, I would like uh, the High Commissioner to reflect on how we should communicate going forward if the the crisis and the war uh, continues and the outflow continues. How should uh, the international community, governments, NGOs, and we as research community uh, secure the openness and uh, acceptance of the European governments? And I ask this, of course, on the background on the 2015 situation where we saw the welcome refugees, positive wave of attention, and then turning into more deterrence and closure of these states. So how can we secure the openness going forward? Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other questions before? Yes, we'll take one more here, if that's okay. Paul Nesser from the Norwegian Organization for Asylum Seekers. Uh, you were a bit careful about saying to what extent should we step up relocating at this stage. And I would think that a message to the big receiving countries uh, now would be for countries like Norway through the government to step up relocation immediately. Thank you very much also, Paul Nesser. Would you like to start but, engaging with these questions? You know, I think on the first question I'll say something, but maybe it's good to hear also what people yep. here in Norway think yes. about that <laughs> and what's the best messaging. Actually, I'd mm. be very interested to also hear how we can help. But I would say that you, you already gave almost Im the implied response in your question because the challenge will be sustaining that solidarity. And uh, uh, I asked the, the prime minister of Poland yesterday, so what 
Kandu, he said one, one important message that you can pass to the Polish people and to the other people of those countries is you're not alone. We are helping you. We're helping you financially. We, this is why we're starting this big cash program in, in Poland with, with Caritas, with a local organization to distribute you know, immediate cash to, to refugees, etc., etc. So you know, it's a sentiment of sharing, of, of that they're not alone is very important at the moment. And then uh, you know, we will have to sustain. I think that this brings to the second question. Uh, should we also promote more relocation? I would say that it is almost inevitable that this is coming. We just need to be a bit careful about that. I was cautioned on purpose. At the moment, this relocation is already happening spontaneously, and it is not bad because, you know, spontaneous, it is accepted. Temporary protection allows this to happen. They're doing this legally. They're not breaking the rules. And not regulating it too much, perhaps at this stage is better. The problem will be when people do not have ways to go and distribute themselves because they have no connection. So we need to prepare for that. But at the moment, I would not over-regulate it because this spontaneous distribution is helpful. Um, uh, we will see soon, I'm pretty sure, a decline of people moving from the border countries by themselves. That's when uh, that... Uh, relocation, as you call it, which is the, the name we've given to this operation, will, will, be, um, will be happening. And what we need to do is prepare for that. But this is really a responsibility of states. So we need to encourage them, especially the EU, to come up with some rules of the game on how to do that. Thank you very much, Filippo Grandi. Um, I will now like to invite all the other panelists also respond. Um, uh, at your discretion to the different questions here, and maybe we're soon going in for, for a landing. So then my sort of final summing up question would all, at the same time, so you can select between these questions and, and this one. Um, how can we forge now both in Norway and elsewhere in Europe and beyond an understanding of uh, displacement and refugee protection being matters that fundamentally concern us all? and the, the provision of protection as a fundamental way of showing international solidarity. So how can we forge this understanding instead of a, a race to the bottom in terms of who, who, who should do the least in terms of this responsibility uh, sharing? Who I saw Jan Egeland and then... My point was uh, was actually uh, can be an answer to your question, but it was related to the the, the other one also. Um, I still do not understand why not Norway with Sweden could take more initiatives with UNHCR for responsibility sharing. Why would the two be a good fit? Norway is by far the biggest relative donor in the world. I mean, it's like five to ten times we good Lutheran taxpayers <laughs> were willing to pay five to ten times more than the average OECD country to foreign assistance. We're not among the best in receiving. Well, we're not. We take few asylum seekers now, as Paul Nessa would know, racket low, actually, the, in, in recent years, and we have a, a limited quote of three thousand. Sweden is, look at the history, it's, it's actually <laughs> above Germany. There are two fantastic countries in Norway, to, in, in Europe, to, to receive uh, refugees, Sweden and Germany. And they're two functioning, uh, wonderful countries. I mean, and 
Denmark among the worst in the world, and I keep saying it, I will do until something happens there, <laughs> leading the, uh, the race to the bottom, really. Sweden is among those. Why don't they say, listen, Europe, can, can, we, can we meet? Can we talk? Can we distribute? How come some are taking zero refugees now, where others take hundreds of thousands? How come some are giving billions and others are giving very little? I think it would be an initiative. I'm, I'm amazed that the two are not doing it. So, Filippo, I have a free idea to you. Push the two to really host that kind of, of meeting because they, they are uh, high, up, uh, high up there. Uh, that's, uh, apart from that, I, I keep also saying, in many ways, it's a battle of values, this now. I mean, the, and, and Europe now, faced with the crisis we have, it will go on for a long time. It will become more and more bitter. It could go across the borders. Actually, a lot of Russian-speaking people are fleeing into Russia. Russia is a reception country now. There's a lot of people suffering there. I mean, we have to do principled work on all sides and fight for the people in need. But we have to understand that it didn't get better in Afghanistan because it got worse in Ukraine. It will get worse in, in Afghanistan because it got worse in Ukraine, mm. because international relations go, will go down mm. in the deep freezer. Mm. So it's a battle of values, and, and I hope we can all join in, mm. in, in, in that. Thank you very much for that, uh, Jan Egeland. Now to you, Maya Janmir, for some final Yeah, my, mindful of the time. I would just like to reiterate my, my call that I said uh, initially about access to international protection. Uh, and that, of course, concerns all refugees and asylum seekers, irrespective of, of race or citizenship or ethnicity. And I still think that we can do much more in this regard to dismantle these hierarchies of protection that nonetheless continue to exist in global refugee protection. Thank you very much, uh, Maya Janvir. Olivier Mukuta, can, what are your uh, final thoughts on these big questions? My final thought was this, this one thing that I actually forgot when, in terms of uh, donation as we mm. speak, mm. there is corruption. Yeah. Mm. I think we need to really watch out for all these funds that have been mobilized. Uh, it's, they, unfortunately, a lot of money end up in the wrong people's hands. So please watch out for that. Thank you. Also well noted. Thank you. And I think on the sort of messaging, of course, I think we already see a bit of a shift from the government. I mean, the Minister of Justice wants uh, just before the week, and also, you know, confirming this uh, temporary collective protection for, you know, so that maybe the awareness that is something that will come closer <laughs> has started. Uh, I think for from the sort of part of the foreign policy that I sort of advise, or we as the section advise the foreign ministry on, and where we can also offer sort of our political and moral support to our humanitarian partners, is because we don't know what happens in two weeks, three weeks. I mean, to sort of make not forget that the ones we are focusing on are the people in need of humanitarian assistance, regardless the outcome of this conflict, because then suddenly <laughs> political or, or sort of public support might, uh, you know, um, not be as easily mobilized uh, in a way. I'm just sort of putting that thought out there that we, we as the international community, then of course, um, 
will have to keep up uh, and mobilizing for, for the ones in need of protection and assistance. And we will always sort of have your back as humanitarian partners uh, who need to operate uh, in very difficult circumstances, regardless of, you know, the outcome. Yeah. And that doesn't, of course, don't only entail to Ukraine, but wherever you need to be. Thank you very much, Gunn Jorid. Was that a final comment from you uh, well, after this discussion? I, I will uh, repeat a bit what I said. You know, I think that we live in such a difficult world that um, the temptation to be pessimistic is always very strong. Um, and I, I feel that, at least in my job, I cannot be pessimistic, otherwise I better do something else. I don't have any plans for that for the time <laughs> being. So I need to keep looking at the even small windows of opportunity. You know, I think there were two very seminal events in the last year. One was when the entire world watched people trying to get on planes at Kabul airport. And the second one is now, yep. the Ukrainian flight. And I think that for many people, this was an eye-opener. That's why people flee, because they're afraid, and they're ready to take any risk to just grab that plane or you know, go across that border. And I think that this is a powerful message, more powerful than anything the High Commissioner for Refugees or the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council can say. These are images that have struck. Now, we need to, we need to build on that awareness because awarenesses are short. You know, we need to build on that awareness to translate it into concrete measures and we've spoken about that so i won't repeat you know i should have mentioned earlier we have the deputy ambassador of colombia here you know what president duque did last just a year ago i was with him in bogota giving temporary protection to almost two million venezuelans was a gesture of great courage so if colombia can do it i think europe can do it as well thank you Thank you very much, uh, Mr. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi, and thank you so much to all our panelists sharing your insights and experience and expertise from all your different positions. This has been a highly useful discussion, and I am sure it has been for all of us here, uh, seeing, taking both um, a look at the very current situation and our concerns for the regions in and around Ukraine, but also zooming out to look at different situations around the globe. And I think we have been able to touch up on both challenges in terms of international cooperation, funding streams, but also to be mindful of the important role of local actors, individuals, civil society, in conjunction with the large international organizations. So uh, please join me. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi, thank you so much to all our panelists. Thank you.